Just want to send you a huge thank you for tuning in. I can't believe this is two years that we've been on this journey. Looking forward to reviewing all of those awesome episodes and creating more for you. My sole goal was to create a software that can show some metrics, but really focus on benchmarks, right? And over time, you know, we, we, we kept listening to our customer and, you know, we want to add this, we want to add that, we want to add this. And, and it started to get to be a dashboard with a lot of data, to your point, kind of getting a little steered off course to where we want to be. And, I think at the end of the day, whenever somebody comes into our booth like you did or somebody, I have a conversation with somebody, I always ask the question, how are you measuring your practice performance, right? Um, and, you know, I get the standard answer sometimes, well, my accountant tells me I'm up. Well, then my, my answer is, well, great. What does your accountant really know about your business, you know, in, in, its, in, its, in its entirety? Um, and then I go, well, what, what, can, what would you contribute to that growth? What, what is good growth? Is 10% good growth? 15? Do you know what you did last year? What what were some peak months? You know, so these are all questions I think doctors like yourself also knew that they needed an answer to. I think you are obviously more more inclined uh, with your with your metrics, obviously. Um, but I think where it's evolved is that we try to keep it simple, you know, with the metrics that we're showing to make it easy to understand. Because what we found out that we know without a shadow of a doubt when it comes to measuring. And it's tough. Let me back up for a second. There are products out there today, third-party products that you can buy and you can see the direct benefit from it. Like if it's um, a patient reminder system, that's easy for a doctor to understand, right? Mm -hmm. Because they know if they get a patient coming back into their door, that's an opportunity to make more money. You can't really argue with that. It's Look, I can sell that all day. It makes complete sense to me. You know, companies like Weave, you know, companies like Verify, I mean, you can see the direct impact on your bottom line. And with Analyze, to be honest, it's tough sometimes to always look back. You can see the metrics and you can see improvement. Can you necessarily contribute that to, to Analyze? Uh, in regards to practice, you know, we are a tertiary care center. We're a, we're a three ophthalmology practice with, you know, um, six optometrists. And we have uh, OD resident as well as a MD fellow that's with us on a yearly basis. And then we also take some students as well. So externships and, you know, our real belief is that we're an extension of our referring optometries network. Like our referral optometrists, if they need us for something involving anterior segment disease or glaucoma, we want to be available for them. Uh, that may mean surgery. That may mean just, Hey, another second opinion. And then once we have answered that question, or once we've done a surgery, our goal is to get those patients back to uh, our referring optometrists. And that's worked really well for us. For us as optometrists within Vance Thompson Vision, I love it because I get to practice at the highest level possible uh, for optometry. And the ophthalmologists that I work with really allow us as the optometrists in the practice to run the clinic. You know, they want to spend their time in surgery. And yeah. so they don't even have a clinic schedule. The majority of their time is in surgery. And what we're doing as the optometrists in the practice is we're getting patients either prepared for surgery or we're doing some of those glaucoma evaluations or we're handling some tough anterior segment disease. And it brings a lot of joy to me to be able to do that. So they place a lot of trust in us and it works well because it allows our patients to get into surgery in a timely fashion. 
Mm-hmm. They don't have to wait months upon months to get in for surgery. They can get in typically within two weeks because our schedules aren't bogged down and our surgeons aren't bogged down with having to see a tough schedule. That's what the optometrists do. And and it's worked really, really well for us. So walk us through what that means. So how did you develop a a referral network? What were the things that you did to develop that referral network? And how do you, uh, how do you kind of feed that and support that network? Because they're still referring to you, right? They are. And I think that they're also wanting referrals, you know, for cataract surgery or cross-linking or, um, you know, even retina procedures if, if, you know, if you're seeing retina or glaucoma. And I think that the referrals need to go both ways. So yeah. I, try to, I try to leave things out of my scope on purpose, even though I trained, you know, I was with at Boston Palmer training in glaucoma mm-hmm. for a year. I don't want to do it because I want to leave it to someone else. And what I do is I constantly reach out to these doctors. I maintain relationships with them. I have dinner with them. I have lunch with them. I constantly refer them patients. I even like bring them goodies sometimes. It's not bribing, you know, it's, it's really just maintaining. A sure. It's thanking them, right? It's thanking them, not bribing them. Yeah. And it, it's, it, it's, it's just kind of maintaining a good relationship with these people. And then um, I think that doing a residency where I live actually helped me kind of get my door, my foot in the door just by knowing some ophthalmologists. I was training with some ophthalmologists who later opened up their own practice in, in this area or who knew or, or introduced me to other people in this area. And I've maintained relationships ever since. So nine years later. I think you brought up a few kind of really, really interesting things. One, Right off the get-go, you're partnering with somebody. So you're sharing a lot of that risk, but you also are both very aligned. Um, you're both sharing what what sounds like to be a full-time um, practice or practitioner's schedule. So you're both saying, hey, I'm going to vote, devote two and a half days a week to patient care. And then some other percentage of time towards admin. Like, did you guys just divvy that up and say, well, hey, I like doing this. I enjoy doing this. Or did you guys really kind of split that up 50-50 and say, Hey, let's work on the marketing together. Hey, let's work on HR together. Like, how did you guys divvy that up initially? Yeah, I think it was a combination of things. I think, you know, you realize certain strengths and things you you have an affinity for, or a, a, you know, a knack for that you might not have even been able to divvy up on paper before you, you did it. I mean, I think especially in, you know, you and I, when we went to school, there was some practice management training, but, but you know, nothing really prepares you for being a business owner and an HR manager and you know, sometimes a plumber and a janitor and, and everything else that goes into that. Um, so, you know, we did things that, that um, you know, I think on the financial side allows for some checks and balances. You know, I paid the bills when she'd reconcile the checkbook or, um, you know, just different things like that where we both were able to keep a pulse on the business. And, and not that there were ever any trust issues because we really have not had any of that, but it, it, it just allowed us to, to kind of check each other in a positive way. Um, to, to make sure nothing was, was, uh, you know, getting out of, out of line about or out of turn. Um, to this day, you know, uh, one of us does payroll, one of us does, you know, other things. And, and we definitely divide and conquer not to duplicate efforts, you know, 20 years together, it, it really is a marriage and, and, uh, you know, you have your good days and your bad days and, and the days that you just, you know, it all goes smoothly and the days it doesn't. And, and, uh, you know, you just keep in mind that you're all after the same goal. You're all on the same team. 
So, Mick, tell tell us, you have this interested perspective on profit. So, lay out for us what what you see as the traditional kind of perspective on profit, and maybe a new way of thinking about it that could make us better business owners. Yeah. So, you know, as I said, most of us have very little, if no, business acumen training. Um, But even if you attended eighth grade economics class, you probably remember learning. Uh, the concept of uh, profit and loss. So money comes into a practice and we spend money to generate the revenue to come into the practice. And then hopefully we don't spend more than what comes in and what's Mm -hmm. left is called profit. That's the, that's the general accounting principle definition. That's the government's formula called gap for profit revenue minus expenses equals profit. The problem with that model is that's a very accountant-oriented way to look at the finances of our business because we don't take into consideration the human element and the human behavioral impact of uh, money Uh and the fact that we all have a slightly different money personality and the way we manage money, the way we think about it, the way uh, it plays a role in our lives is different for all of us. And so those behavioral tendencies often influence how we run a business because we're not dry accountants. Our DNA is to be an optometrist. And so spreadsheets and budgets and balance sheets don't work for us. What does work for us is the the existing human behavior that we have. One of the the things is they teach us is how to... um, pool your own personal resources. And I think that, um, and I'm sure you can attest to this, you know, over the years of being involved in the AOA and the academy, we developed these relationships with practitioners all over the country, you know, and being able to tap into different people that, you know, are really good, maybe to, uh, someone that you can kind of fall to if if you have a clinical question or someone you could uh, to, to tap into if you have a business question, but even outside of the optometry world, like friends that are in finance, friends that are in, in, in marketing and just being able to understand your network and how to be able to, um, effectively utilize your resources. And this is not anything that you have to dig into your pocket with. If you, if you take like a step back and think about it, you probably have access to a wealth of information that you may not be tapping into, which is extremely important. And as a doctor, I mean, we've had, you've had years of interactions with people, whether on your professional career, while in school, and these are the networks that you really need to tap into to be successful. I, I yeah. What, uh, what, what are some areas that from that you've taken away and, and you've looked to within your own network is, can you think of an example of when you've, how you've used that since, since learning more about it? I think the financial piece, um, really understanding, um, because I mean, I got the eye doctor piece down, you know, like, yeah. I, but I think understanding things like balance sheets and understanding things like, you know, income statements, like that has been huge. Another thing also has been HR, just understanding different ways that you have to um, how you should interact with your employees, um, legal concerns with that. You know, I just kind of going through my network, I found someone that's in charge of an HR division of, of, of her company, you know, and I didn't even realize that, you know, and, and, and so many of the resources that she's been able to give me have been extremely helpful. 
Do you do something to kind of weed people out before they come in? Or do you try to open the doors for everybody right away? You absolutely nail. I love that you do that. You bring them in, you see who shows up and, and you kind of take it from there. What are we halfway there? If they You're halfway up. there. So, so what we do is we apply and we put the position on Indeed. Every applicant that comes through, I have a set question list that I actually send to everybody. Don't even look at the resume. Yeah. I send it to every single person. Right. Probably about right. 20 to 30% actually reply and answer the questions. Mm. But those are weed out questions. Then I go ahead mm. and I actually will either schedule or call and do a phone interview with them. If they don't answer, I text them. What kind of questions are those, Ryan? Yeah. So I, I asked them, you know, we have two offices in Charlotte. So I want to know like, Hey, we have offices at North Lake mall and at Concord mills, you know, is it, are these reasonable locations for you to, to commute to? Is it something you think that you can make it to on a daily basis? Seems um, important. Everybody in our practice has to cover weekdays and weekends. Is this something you're able to do? Tell me about a time when you've encountered challenges in a workplace environment, particularly a conflict and how you go about addressing that and how you've actually uh, handle that situation. And then I want to know like a baseline rate range. What are you looking for or expecting from a compensation package? Give me the range you're looking for. Yeah. Otherwise and it's a waste of time. If they're like time for everybody. $7 more. You nailed it. Yeah. And so I use those things to weed them out. And then I go ahead and, and indeed I actually just favorite them or just add them to like the yes list. And then I will try to reach out to them and not everybody answers and everybody replies back to the text. But the ones that do, those are the ones that make it to the phone call stage of the interview. And then after that, I bring them in for a scheduled shadow. And you started utilizing virtual people in your practice, which I was a little nervous about years ago uh, because of the safety concerns and how does this all work out? Tell us a little bit about how you have started working virtually with people and how they're helping make you a better doctor. Yeah, so it's been one of the uh, best decisions I've ever made in terms of uh, improving my clinical care of patients and uh, getting time back, uh, which is our non-renewable resource. And uh, one thing that we do is I have a virtual assistant who is you know, from the Philippines. And uh, when you hire these people, the one thing great about them is that these are professionals. So when we hire some of our techs and some of our opticians, some of them are not professionals, right? Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is some of them don't yeah. show up to work on time. Some of them, you know, maybe are not all in. Some of them are, in, but um, there are some challenges there. But when you hire some, in my situation, Philippines, who are a, a professional nurse, professional pharmacist, professional therapist, that's their background before yeah. I hired them. They're professionals. And what we do is we hire them and uh, we pay them an extremely high wage for, for their standard of living. And so they're very pleased and happy with it. And this is their, this is their profession. This is what, this is for real for them, not just a, just not just a job that they're hopping from temporarily. And, uh, these guys are let, great. Let they, me unpack that for just a second. So, yeah. you know, I don't mean to diminish the team that I have. We have in, in YouTube, we have incredible people that work for us. You know, we've got this core group of people that have been with us through COVID. But then somebody moves and, you know, we have to bring in somebody new. And, you know, these people don't go to optometry technician school for two years. They don't go and learn about front desk for, you know, three years before they come to work for us. We're in optometry. We're hiring people, you know, all across the board. And 
You know, these people may have never worked in a professional setting and they don't know. And you kind of have to train them how to be an adult. Some of these people, you have to train them the importance of showing up to work because, you know, maybe they worked at another facility where it was okay to not show up to work one day or another and somebody was always covering them. And so we just are struggling with that across the board in optometry. We don't have a dental hygienist school. We don't have, you know, dental assistant training programs. And, uh, and so as Tom pointed out, you know, these people that are being hired as these virtual assistants, they tend to tend to have a professional degree, many of them. I've hired an architect who was getting paid more to work with me than she was able to get paid as an architect in the Philippines. And you're pointing out, you know, nurses or um, you know, in some cases, physical therapists, they, and, and they want to be in the medical community and this is even paying them more. So is it, is it the problem that, um, people don't, don't know what sales being a salesperson is, or is the problem that they don't know the products? I, I know those are hand in hand, but yeah, yeah, they, they are quite a bit, but I would say the, the biggest problem is that people don't know the art of sales. Mm. is the biggest problem um, is uh, many will know their many in our industry will know the products rather well. Um, they can often speak to the products, you know, speak to their favorite products or the ones that they know that that work well for patients. But rarely um, one of the one of the art of sales things that we talk about is being able to translate that to a patient. So you might know that this corridor and this progressive and this fit works really great. Your patient does not care about that. <laughs> they care about how it's going to work out for them. They care about the experience. And so, um, you know, a lot in the industry will talk about, you know, um, sell, don't sell features, you know, sell the benefits. Mm -hmm. We go even further than that we, where we say don't necessarily sell the features, but sell the experience. What is your patient actually going to experience? And when you're able to talk about that, it really helps to get away from all of our lingo and all the technical things that we have learned that we try yeah. to not necessarily impress our patients with, but, you know, tell, speak to them about, and it's basically like speaking Chinese to them. <laughs> yeah. You know, I think that that, that is, is, is kind of what we're stuck in the medical community doing is we're stuck telling people the problem that they have. Yeah. And <laughs> Um, and, uh, to explain the lack of experience that patients have. And then we've spent all of our time doing that, that when we come to the solution, we kind of braze over that. And so this is what you need, right? Right. Rather than explaining how this is what you need and this is why you need it. How do you guys handle and manage that? Sure. Yeah. It's very much a dynamic process, uh, just like anything in healthcare. Right. And, um, we certainly don't want to tell our doctors how to manage patients from a therapeutic standpoint, right? We want them to rely on continuing education and stay abreast to uh, all the new treatment protocols. Uh, but we ourselves have to do the same um, so that they can kind of look to us as, as guides and resources if we need to provide that information. Um, but we certainly are revisiting our, our protocols. I know you said you didn't want to use that word, but <laughs> our, our approach, if you will, uh, every six months or so. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing is, you know, we're mainly focused on 
sort of like the pricing and the logistics of the clinical care rather than the clinical care itself. Um, because, you know, we, like I said earlier, we don't really want to tell doctors how to practice, but we certainly want to make it easy for them to um, treat myopia, for example. You know, if, if your patient or if a doctor wants to do my sight lenses, um, how much are they going to charge for the lenses? How much are they going to charge for the follow-up visits? Um, you know, all these questions are, are questions that we need to answer and lay out for our doctors. I think the good thing, too, with establishing those steps, the protocol, so to speak, are um, you provide the doctors with the technologies that you want them ha having access to. So, for example, if you want like a certain lens, OK, let's make sure that we have access to it. If there's a certain technology that's required in the dry eye space, OK, let's make sure that we have access to it in those offices. I think that's I think that's really, really an interesting. <laughs>